Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Adrienne Mayer joins us today. She is research scholar of classics and history of science at Stanford University. Her writings include The Poison King, The Life of Mithridates, Rome's Deadliest Enemy, and Gods and Robots, Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology, which was a big hit. Uh, she, she has a new book out entitled Flying Snakes and Griffin Claws and Other Classical Myths, Historical Oddities and Scientific Curiosities. That is our topic today. Welcome, Dr. Mayer. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You say you have an, quote, obsessive speculation that runs <laughs> to the oddities and curiosities of myths and religion and science, too. What is that about, please? Uh, well, I'm... I'm a historian of ancient ancient science, so I'm looking for the first inklings of sort of the scientific impulse in antiquity in pre and pre-scientific uh, cultures. So I, I especially like to look at ancient Greece and Rome and just read through uh, until I find things that aren't, uh, they really capture, capture my curiosity. I, I think of myself as a historian of human curiosity. So okay. if I find something that no one else has explained, I tend to start a file on it, and then I start going down rabbit holes. And um, this book is sort of the result of, of all those rabbit holes. Well, I, I wasn't going to ask this question. I hadn't thought of it. Just is this curiosity, this goes back many, many years, is that what got you into the scholarly world, these, uh, these strange materials? Yes, I um when I was in college I, I was I was a distracted student during the Vietnam War so there were there were lots of interruptions and um also I'm I was too stubborn to have an advisor so I just took classes in uh um classical civilizations ancient Greece and Rome folklore uh mythology legends and then um history of science this was at a time when history of science classes were first being introduced, and I found history of science fascinating, but I noticed that all the historians of science said that science began in, this, in the 1700s, and I, I felt that, uh, that you could probably push that back to uh, much further, to mille uh, millennia ago, when people had you know used their rational powers of explanation for perplexing things, evidence and um, strange uh, phenomena that they that they noticed in their own landscape and world, um, they often attempted to explain them uh, in rational terms, and yet they use mythological language. So it's, it's, you have to tease out the scientific impulse there. Right. Yeah. And a lot of this is, I mean, a lot of that course of study would require right, very wide reading, 
right? A broad acquaintance with many different civilizations. So this this was it's quite a historically daunting uh, <laughs> research project over the years, but this book really tries to pull a whole lot of things together. It's almost encyclopedic yeah. in its compilation of examples. Uh, you, th- this is this is sort of you, you can see many many years of reading went into this background, yeah? <laughs> That's right. And I think um, the fact that I was not a, uh, a um, I wasn't a conventional student. Uh, it took me 10 years to uh, to get my, my BA degree while I was working full time. But I love to read and research. And I think I also never wanted to specialize in any, any one topic. And uh, I think the longer you the longer you go to uh, to college or university, they f- kind of force you to put blinders on so you can focus. And I uh, I never wanted to do that, so I was unconventional in that way. Um, but of course, I, I trespass in so many different fields of study and discipline. I couldn't do my work if I if I didn't have uh, if I couldn't depend on the generosity and knowledge of experts. So I'm always pestering experts to help me understand um, oddities and curiosities in antiquity. Yeah. Well, let's get into the examples. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the title, what are the flying snakes of Arabia? And, and, this, and this actually is an important part of this. How do we know about them? We know about them because of Herodotus. Uh, Herodotus is the uh, also obsessively curious ancient Greek historian. Uh, sometimes called the father of anthropology. In uh, in antiquity, some people like Thucydides called him the father of lies, but it turns out <laughs> as time goes on, archaeologists and uh, anthropologists and ancient historians find out that uh, many of the things Herodotus reported and that were taken as just mere traveler tales or fictions turn out to be true or at least have germ of truth embedded in them. So uh, Herodotus is the first uh to actually talk about the flying serpents of Arabia. He went, he went to Egypt uh, to see all the wonders and learn the history of Egypt, but he says that he specifically uh, wanted to find out more about these winged serpents that he'd heard about. And supposedly these winged serpents hung out in the area of the Sinai Desert adjacent, just east east of, of Egypt, uh, in the area where people gathered frankincense. Frankincense mm-hmm. was a very precious spice in antiquity, and no one really knew the origins of it, but it was a, a costly fragrance and spice that people used even for medicine. So the fact that, um, that these flying snakes uh, lived in that region, they apparently made it very difficult uh, to gather the frankincense. Who knows? Maybe this is a story put out by the Fran- Frankincense uh, Corporation of Antiquity <laughs> just to keep people away from their from their resources. But Herodotus took it seriously, and he asked priests about it at temples. Um, he ta- he asked all sorts of people about it, and he was actually taken to a um, some sort of valley uh, along uh, along one of the trade routes, probably the incense route all the way to the Middle East, um, and was shown heaps and heaps of skeletons 
that apparently were those of the flying snakes. Now, what could this be? And this this really piqued my curiosity. Uh, it's, it's, it's bothered a lot of people. What could he possibly have seen in that valley? And then what accounts for the story that was taken up by other writers, uh, Greek and Roman, after Herodotus, all talking about these winged snakes of Arabia. And I, I don't want to spoil the chapter since that's the title and the first, uh, the first essay in the book, but I think I come up with about eight uh, different possibilities uh, for identifying these uh, flying snakes. Um, and that, they're and, not really flying snakes. <laughs> but, but what, what, what you come up with show shows that, okay, maybe some exaggeration going on, but there is something here that is There's real. something there. And that's one of the things that drives me in my research is that I, I, I I have this intuition that if there are stories or legends about nature, usually those are perpetuated because people find or see or hear about some sort of mysterious evidence that seems to reinforce the story over generations. Um, So the flying snake story was told by Herodotus, 5th century BC, and then Greek and Latin writers talk about it for for another thousand years, so um, what what something is is um, confirming the story for enough people that the story keeps getting told. Right. Okay. From flying snakes to mermaids. <laughs> uh, when do we begin to hear about mermaids, and and where? Well, I think the the I, many cultures have stories about uh, sort of android sea creatures. Um, I. I think the first uh, first I've heard of uh, mermaids in uh, Western literature would be um, Pausanias, who talked about actually going to look at or view a display of a merman, or triton, as they were called in ancient Greece. Um, and he describes this triton that is... Uh, uh, displayed in the city of Tanagra, and Pausanias is a is a Greek traveler who goes to see all the strange and historical things around the ancient Greek world in the second century A.D. So he describes things with, with great detail. He, he describes this triton as having a fishy tail, but uh, um, the upper body of a man, and that it has long stringy green hair like algae and that it has fingernails and uh, like scales and fangs and we have no idea what this is but it sounds an awful lot like the Fiji mermaid that you can go and see in the Yale Peabody Museum. Um, Sailors like to you know they've got a lot of time on their hands uh, Mm -hmm. on their trips and they like to bring back stories and you want to bring back evidence for your stories if you're going to tell stories about mermen and mermaids uh it would it would really help if you had some visual aids so we know that sailors beginning in the middle ages used to uh they go to exotic climates right Uh, places where there are monkeys they they sewed together uh, the tail of a fish and a mummified monkey and then passed these off as mer people. And uh, many people have written about these in the Middle Ages. And as I say, uh, the Peabody Museum at Yale and also in Harvard, both of them have uh, mermaids that are made like this. It's possible that what Pausanias saw was, was very similar. Hmm. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, another, uh, then the next one, the, another famous uh, uh, myth, the Golden Fleece, which I, I actually know, I, I learned everything that one needs to know about the Golden Fleece when I was 12 years old. <laughs> when my brother and I saw the film, the early 60s films, Jason and the Argonauts. It's all one in there. One of my favorites. Uh, one of my it, favorites of all time. Everyone should see that movie. That is fantastic. <laughs> that is, that it's is fantastic. movie. It is so great. But is, is there more to the story than that, Adrian? Yes. The, uh, the Golden Fleece <laughs> was something that Jason and the Argonauts were searching for, the quest for the Golden Fleece. And it's, it's a mysterious uh, treasure that is a sheepskin um, covered in, in gold. It's not gilded, but it, it has a lot of, uh, um, it, it, it's covered in flakes or, or uh, sand of gold. And this was mysterious to the Greeks because they don't have gold in, in mainland Greece. All their gold is imported, and they, uh, they speculate about the sources of gold. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, Jason and the Argonauts are, are traveling in the Black Sea region, and they end up in Colchis, which is uh, the land of Medea, the great sorceress, mythic sorceress Medea, who helps them. Now, this area today is the Republic of Georgia. It's the um, the eastern shores of the Black Sea. Very exotic area for the for the early Greeks, when the the um, the epic story of the Argonauts. Some scholars actually think that predates Homer, so it's a very old story. Before the before the Greeks knew where the people of the Caucasus or the Black Sea got the gold that they imported, and so this fleece was really important, and it was supposedly guarded by a dragon. And Medea helps Jason by concocting a sleeping potion for the gra- uh, dragon. And we have vase paintings that show Jason uh, with the sleeping dragon, and he and Medea are grabbing this uh, fleece that's that's um, covered with gold. Well, yeah. it turns out that uh, in antiquity, the people of Colchis, or what is now Georgia, on the Black Sea, did actually use uh, lambskins to gather gold. And I don't know, I don't think this was in the movie Jason and the Argonauts, but what they do is um, the gold is up in the high mountains of the Caucasus, and it erodes down into uh, into the streams that are along the shore of, of uh, what is now Georgia. And to gather this fine gold sand, the, the people of that region would take lambskins, fleece, and uh, submerge it in the, in the streams for a long time. And then you, when you pull it up, it, the fleece captures this gold sand and gold fl- flakes. So you hmm. actually have golden fleece. Um, it's the symbol of the Republic of Georgia. If you go to this region now, there are statues of Medea and Jason with the golden fleece. Um, so th- this was not understood by the early Greeks when they were, when the mythographers were first telling the story of the quest for the golden fleece. But by the time of Strabo in the first century BC, Strabo is a geographer. He's very interested in how streams form and where gold comes from. And he was actually from uh, the northern part of the Black Sea area. He actually wrote in the first century BC, that uh, the Golden Fleece must have been uh, one of these lambskins used by the ancient Georgians to gather Hmm. gold. Hmm. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning. 
all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, one of the great things about the book is that when you tell the stories and you find some empirical, historical angle on this, the, the effect isn't uh, disillusionment or, or disenchantment. I think it makes all the stories more, more interesting, even the legendary side of the I think, story. I think you're uh, right. Interesting yeah. there. Yeah, it doesn't de it doesn't uh, demystify them. It just makes makes you ever more uh, respectful, and uh, um, you just admire the the storytellers that they could embed all of this natural knowledge in mythological language and stories that are so fascinating to right. us today. I mean, we we still love these stories, and to know that they contain germs of truth embedded in there um, and and actual folk knowledge that's really exciting i think most people really enjoy finding that out and i found that um in the specialists that i talked to from paleontologists to uh geographers uh, um, archaeologists they're all very excited to find out that the greeks did actually notice these things and describe them um, hmm. so that's it is as you say it, it it doesn't it doesn't take away from the from the fascination of these stories uh, a side question: Is there is there a principle of selection for the book? Any special interests that guides the inclusions, or you're just you're open? <laughs> I'm open. I I picked um, uh, I I picked the stories that I thought would uh, be the most fascinating to a general audience and a specialist audience. All of my books are meant for general readership as well as specialists. So most of my books are, are um, highly documented with footnotes and bibliographies. This uh, Flying Snakes and Griffin Claws uh, does not have footnotes, um, but uh, there are uh, ways to find out. You can email me for all the sources. Um, right. uh, but th this one I, w I was really going for, just the, just the enthralling stories and how deeply you can go into these rabbit holes and actually feel like you're like it's rewarding. You're coming back with some real science and history in those stories. Yeah. Okay, another another title here. What are the Griffin claws? Griffin claws uh, caught my attention because I'm interested in griffins because it's a strange creature with a beak like an eagle or a raptor and a body like a lion or a, a wolf, and uh, these were legendary creatures in antiquity. There are no myths about griffins. They were thought to be a real creature in antiquity. Um, by the Middle Ages, they became uh, uh, just a, a symbol of vigilance because they supposedly guarded gold and um, they supposedly would reward, in, in Christian mythology, they would reward saints or other good people who, who would help griffins. And so I wondered how did St. Cuthbert, who is just uh, uh, a, a very famous guy from uh, northern England um, in antiquity, in, in Middle Ages, how did he come to own 
two griffin claws. Um, and, and you can go and see one of them that belonged to St. Cuthbert you know, from about 800 AD. In the British Museum, they have the griffin claw. Well, it's this long, curved, uh, claw-like object uh, with a um, silver at the top saying that it belonged to St. Cuthbert and uh, all of the uh, archives and records of St. Cuthbert's belongings say that he had two of these and he also had two griffin eggs which have disappeared what what were they so i i looked at the um at the supposed claw in the british museum and it turns out to be a rare species of ibex horn with mm. the sheath taken off and so obviously in the middle ages people thought of griffins as very large <laughs> to have this three foot long curved uh claw um it it uh, it would belong to a gigantic creature, but of course, in the Middle Ages, people thought that everything was bigger and better in, in antiquity. So, it hmm. turns out that Charlemagne also had griffin claws. So I, I I delved into that rabbit hole as well. His griffin claws were supposedly given to him by uh, by the ruler of Persia. So uh, it's an interesting story. And if you look at the at the inventories of Charlemagne's treasures that were given to a, a specific churches in France and uh, Western Germany, um, they list the Griffin Claws, and you can go and see those as well. His turned out to be not not quite as large as St. Cuthbert's. They turn out to be the horns of water buffalo <laughs> turned into drinking cups. And hmm. apparently this was a uh, this became a big fad. Everybody had to have a Griffin Claw drinking cup. Um, you could probably find one on eBay today. <laughs> Very good. What in the world are the racing turtles of Greece? <laughs> racing turtles. Well, it's it's that is a um, just a play on Zeno's paradox that uh, if you're racing even with a turtle. It's a mathematical paradox that uh, if, if, if you go twice as far and the turtle goes half as far, you'll never win the race against, against the turtle. Mm -hmm. um, but there, I also found that turtles were musical. Um, it turns right. out that turtles have a love song. <laughs> and uh, I just went into all of the mythology associated with turtles. But then I also talked about my own time in, in Greece and coming across uh, turtles that were both fighting and mating, uh, and I never heard the I never heard the love song of the of the Greek land tortoise, but but there was a um, there was a a, a biologist uh, from Yale once again who who recorded uh, uh, reported at least uh, the love song of of the musical racing turtles of of Greece. Hmm. Um. <laughs> well, we go from them to. <clears throat> quote, a little bird with poison poop. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, that's the dicaron bird, whose um, droppings were supposed to be uh, mean instant death if they were ingested. And these were a, a precious, these droppings, this poison from the bird droppings, were uh, 
a costly treasure that belonged to the rulers of India and apparently were uh, given as gifts to the kings of Persia for use in assassinations or <laughs> if you needed them for suicide, you know, like a cyanide tooth or something like that. Um, so what this really, uh, really piqued my curiosity. What kind of bird would have lethal droppings that would be that fatal? Um, the bird was said to be very tiny, uh, about the size of a quail egg, which means a very small um, orange bird. Um, and I wondered, could this could this have been some sort of beetle that, when it flew, hmm. was uh, looked something like a bird from a distance, or maybe garbled, as you pointed out. Many of these stories were garbled as they come across across the trade routes from India all the way to Greece. And it is a Greek doctor, Ctesias, who worked for the Persian uh, court, uh, who um, who reported on this bird. Who knows, the story may have been quite garbled, um, either accidentally, as the story is perpetuated over the trade route by many different people, or maybe it's um, maybe it's been garbled on purpose to keep the actual source of this poison secret, since it's such a costly uh, costly substance um, treasured by Persian kings and Indian kings. So I I try to um, dig into what sort of um, what sort of tiny orange bird or flying creature would have lethal droppings. Um, we know that it. Ctesias says it came from the from the mountains of India. Well, the word India in that time period. Ctesias is from the same time period as as uh, Herodotus. Um, he's collecting interesting stories from Persia and, and points to the east um, in the 5th century BC. So what sort of thing could be mistaken for a little orange bird with lethal droppings? And I found out there really are poisonous birds, and there are poisonous beetles that make their they make their homes in birds' nests. So hmm. I won't go much further than that because I want people to read the chapter, but um, I, I think we... I think we can probably narrow it down uh, to a couple of suspects. Hmm. <laughs> I, I suspect, uh, Adrian, that you like going to museums, you like going to archives, but you, you don't want to go in the big rooms. You, you want to go up in the museum attic <laughs> in a corner where there are a lot of cobwebs and then there's some bo unopened boxes or crates there or in the library. You want to go. You, you want to go down in the basement and, and pull some 18th century archaeologists studies <laughs> off the shelf that haven't been checked out in, in, in a century. Is that correct? Absolutely. You've got my number. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you really figured me out. I, I consider myself a kind of uh, stealth scholar. I've been called a guerrilla scholar. Um, I think I'm sort of like a cold case detective for antiquity and a, that is what I love. I love those dusty corners. And my favorite museums are the ones that have uh, inches of dust on all of the exhibits. We have places where you feel like you could discover something there rather yeah. than new museums where they just show you a few objects from their collection and then the texts tell you exactly what you're supposed to think about them. And those are my least favorite museums. And museum curators have actually told me People come to the new, all these new interactive museums. They come for the grand openings, but nobody returns. And I like museums where people keep going back over and over again because it's so enchanting to feel that you might excavate something looking at those uh, 
at those exhibits. And you're right, whenever I go to a museum, uh, often to give uh, lectures or talks, public talks in the museum, one of my conditions is I want to see what you've got in the basement. I want to yeah. see what you've got in the drawers uh, in the in the basement, and and curators are all, often very excited to show off. Oh, they those they love. They live for that. <laughs> when, when I when I would teach, you know, nineteenth century American literature, I'd, I'd make an appointment with the special collections and take all the kids upstairs, and the the archivist would bring out a first edition of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. Yes. Let's look at the you know this is eighteen fifty five. Let's look at the real book. The real object, not the anthology, yes. uh, with, with the poems in it, and and I think just the the artifact, right, the physical thing, yes, and, and get these kids. No, this is this is fun. This is fun stuff. So, <laughs> uh, I, I, Siegfried and the Dragon. You know, what is that? And also, tell us what is Dragon's Rock like uh, these days. Um, I haven't seen uh, Siegfried's um, Dragon. Uh, there's a big dragon um, sculpture uh, yeah. in the in Germany that you can go to, um, uh, based on the on the legend of Siegfried and the dragon. Fafnir was the name of this dragon, and uh, like all dragons, he guarded this huge treasure of gold. And in uh, in the story of Siegfried, it's said that Siegfried tracks this dragon by his footprints, which uh, were sunk into uh, solid stone. And that seems to be a clue uh, to me that uh, what would look like, what, what would in nature, what kind of evidence in nature would, would appear to be dragon's footprints sunk into solid bedrock? Well, we know that there are dragon tracks uh, in China as well, where uh, supposedly dragons uh, were so massive that they sunk their footprints into solid stone. And in these places uh, where there is folklore or legends about dragon tracks, it turns out that paleontologists also find uh, actual dinosaur tracks embedded in stone. And a lot of dinosaur tracks are three-toed um, so that they, they look mm. like either a giant bird or a lizard or, uh, or a dragon. I mean, Chinese dragons have, have three toes or five toes. Um, so do dinosaur uh, uh, tracks. So I found out from paleontologists that there, in fact, are uh, quite uh, rich um, uh, deposits of dinosaur tracks along the Rhine River, and hmm. and these uh, could well be uh, an influence on the story that Siegfried was able to follow the dragon to its lair and get the treasure, uh, kill the dragon um, by following those those. Uh, dragon tracks, which were really dinosaur tracks. Great. The book is Flying Snakes and Griffin Claws and Other Classical Myths, Historical Oddities, and Scientific Curiosities. Adrian Mayer, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.